Hi there, fellow traveler. Welcome to American Road Trip Talk, where we introduce you to the fascinating people and places behind each edition of American Road Magazine. I'm your host, Foster Brown. Today, we wrap up our coverage of the Gangland Fall issue of American Road Magazine with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. Our guest is Lieutenant Mike Klein, quartermaster for the Berrien County Sheriff's Department in southwest Michigan. His office is home to the two Thompson submachine guns that were used in that bloodbath, and in the first of two segments, Lieutenant Mike will tell us how these brutally efficient killing machines started out as the cowboy's best friend. Before we get to our interview, you're invited to celebrate Mardi Gras in Louisiana's Main Street communities during February 2012. For detailed information on all the Mardi Gras happenings in Main Street communities across Louisiana, watch for the events calendar at www.louisianamaintomain.org. Coming soon. By the way, if you like this podcast, be sure to visit us at AmericanRoadMagazine.com to preview the digital edition of our magazine. Hi, this is Foster Brown, and once again, we're following up on one of the articles in our fall issue of American Road Magazine that focused on gangland getaways. This time, we're going to talk with uh, somebody who's much more familiar with the other side of the law, fortunately, uh, the, the side that takes care of us, and that's the police and the law officers. This case, it's in uh, Berrien County, which is in southwest Michigan. And I have in line with me Lieutenant Michael Klein, who is with the Berrien County Sheriff's Department. He is the Lieutenant of Support Services. Mike, welcome to American Road Trip Talk. Good morning. I know, Mike, you have a lot of hats that you wear there, but I want to find out how you came to be the person who was the guardian of the two weapons that were used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In the year 2000, I took a job change that put me in charge of what uh, we refer to as the quartermaster's office, and many different things there. Basically, um, quartermasters, if anybody's familiar with the military terminology, basically they're the the people you go to when you need your supplies. You kind of handle the storehouse uh, there in the uh, sheriff's office then, right? Yeah, everything from boots and badges badges and guns and bullets to paper clips and rubber bands and toner cartridges. (laughs) uh, It all fell under my hat. So then you, you in that role, have become the person who is the guardian of these two weapons, the two Tommy guns that were used on the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yes, um, and how that came about is that part of the... One of, the, one of the duties of the quartermaster is to, is to maintain the armory that we have here at the Sheriff's Department, and that was located in my office. Um, we had, uh, you know, obviously a lot of uh, of our of our duty issue weapons, uh, some special uh, use weapons, uh, ammunition and whatnot, but also part of that uh, was these two Thompson submachine guns. And uh, I had just, I had very little knowledge uh, prior to taking that position. I'd heard about these guns a little bit and had, you know, just, just enough knowledge to kind of be dangerous with them. Um, and uh, it didn't have, you know, I'm, I'm not a gun collector or anything else, um, but uh I do love history, and there's a history to these things, and it just kind of uh, kind of ebbed into a into just into a working yeah. uh, working process, basically. Uh, well, actually, let's step back a second. Let's talk about what a Tommy gun is. Now, on the radio here, uh, as people are listening to this, they don't have the mental image of what that is. So let's help them out a bit. Uh, the article in the uh, magazine shows you holding one of them. But uh, what was a Tommy gun? And and maybe you can explain also why it became a weapon that was favored by the gangsters in the 20s. 
Right. Um, what you, what you have with the with the Thompson submachine gun, and the reason why it's called a a, a Thompson or a Tommy gun is that uh, uh, John Thompson was a uh, a career military officer with the United States uh, military and had had a vision. He was uh, he was firearms. Uh, I don't want to call him the fanatic, but that's what his his direction was in life. And uh, he was always uh, in 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 the intermix of the military and their firearm procurements. And uh, he uh, had a vision of a, of a weapon that uh, would be fully automatic, of which the Thompson submachine gun is. It's the first uh, fully automatic uh, uh, submachine gun that was manufactured, brought into production in the world. Wow. Um, it took a long time to get to what it, what it was and what it is today. It uh, was a very finely produced, uh, intricately produced uh, firearm. It, it had, uh, you know, just innovations that... that and I often I am over exaggerating this, but to bring this thing into production and make it function was a lot like sending a man to the moon because they did things that hadn't been done before, and it took hmm. a lot of repeated efforts to perfect these things. There was a lot of uh, prototypes that didn't cut it and failed, and then they went back to the drawing board. It was just through perseverance that they finally uh, got this thing to where it was a, a fully functional man portable submachine gun it was originally intended to be brought up and, and be used in in world war one there's a nickname that they they, they attached to it. it was referred to as the trench broom oh wow and <laughs> it was just meant to be a, a the war world war one was the trench warfare right. it was ugly and uh, it would have allowed one man to carry a lot of firepower yeah. and attack trenches and and have somewhat better effect than a single shot right how did it end up getting into the hands of the bad guys and at least in, in the minds of the eyes of movie movie goers it became kind of their favorite weapon exactly even though one of the things that uh, that 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 stuck out with this is is number one the machining and the manufacturing of this weapon was was phenomenal and uh, they weren't cheap and after world war 1 obviously the the mentality was uh, you know that was the war to end all wars we were not going to fight any more wars um, and and Colt, uh, the manufacturer of these of these Thompson submachine guns, uh, was having a very hard time selling them to to anyone. And it was only through basically the the times that we were in in the in the twenties, the mid twenties, going into the late twenties, um, that uh, there was a lot of crime that was starting to be committed. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, uh, armored cars that were banks that were being robbed. And you had also, you had actually out west, you had these large, um, eh, call them cattle barons or whatever, that had large herds of cattle, and they were being, you know, uh, robbed, basically. Oh, I see. And the story goes is that, uh, to the best of my knowledge and and my readings and and, uh, investigation into this, is that one of the uh, leaders of one of the Chicago organized crime units prior to Al Capone, one of his higher-up lieutenants had gotten into some hot water, and they had sent him out to a ranch uh, out west. And I, if, I forgive me, I can't remember if it was Wyoming or Montana. Mm-hmm. It was out west, big sky country out there. And um, they, he, he was basically sent out there to cool his heels until things calmed down. Well, what these ranchers were doing at the time is they had caught wind of these Thompsons, and they were able to give one ranch hand or one cowpoke one of these, and he was able to guard the herd against uh, the robbers oh. that were coming to steal. So oh, right. 
Yeah, there's actually a very good uh, uh, advertisement I saw one time. It showed a uh, cowboy on the front of a bunkhouse in his chaps and his and his big 10-gallon hat, and it shows him holding one of these. The, the caption underneath it was, Out West, the Great Equalizer. Oh, my goodness. It's it's incredible. So uh, cowboys were the first ones we see, you know, kind of in the in the advertising, at least, the ones who were exactly. shown holding it. That is fascinating. And, uh, uh, this gangster uh, caught wind of this thing, and he says, Hey, you know what? That's uh, That's pretty impressive. Uh, came back to Chicago, and then uh, they uh, they started to yeah, sporting goods uh, owner uh, store owners that would procure these things from the manufacturer, and uh, then the gangsters would start to uh, you know wow. buy them and utilize them in their daily uh, rampages. Oh my lord! And so that this weapon that had been the kind of the uh, weapon of mass destruction at the time of World War One makes its way into the hand of these gangsters. And uh, in particular in Chicago. Now, uh, this is kind of quickly leading up to the St. Valentine's Day massacre when, uh, and it's described in the article, by the way, in our fall issue where people can read it pretty clearly. But kind of a thumbnail is that uh, Al Capone had it out for some folks uh, in a rival gang on Chicago's north side. And uh, it's not quite sure who was the one that carried out the hit. But uh, they showed up with these Thompson machine guns and essentially wiped out. Uh, how many people were killed in the St. Valentine's Day massacre on uh, February the 14th, 1929? Does anybody know? There is. Uh, there was seven members of the uh, George Bugs Moran gang that were killed that day. And actually, not all seven of them, of them would be, I guess, would be considered actual members. Right. Um, a, a number of them were, but there was actually uh, one of the one of the uh, deceased was uh, just a mechanic that uh, yeah. you know, changed the yeah. tires and, and and changed the oil in, had, the, in the vehicles that they'd use. Had the bad luck of being there that day. Now, I guess this is where we make the link up with where you live right now in Southwest Michigan in Berrien County, uh, because it was later on then that somebody who apparently um, it was determined. Uh, this would be almost like the end of a, almost an entire year from that time. Uh, there was a person in St. Joseph, which is in Berrien County, uh, who was involved in a tragic um, incident with a police officer there who turned out to be somebody who was involved in that St. Valentine's Day massacre. Just give us a short version of what happened there. Al Capone and a lot of his uh, the members of his uh, of his crime uh, syndicate spent a lot of time in our area. It was kind of we were the playground uh, uh, for uh, a lot of these people. It was uh, we were 90 miles from Chicago. Um, uh, we had a lot of activities, uh, entertainment wise, uh, the beautiful beaches here, Lake Michigan, um, another uh, other many different things. Uh, that attracted these these guys. They could also come here and basically kind of feel safe because they didn't have to watch their back while they were here. Nobody was going to snipe at them or anything else. So they spent a lot of time, and the more time they spent here, they started procuring uh, property and residences and kind of setting up roots. And one of these individuals that did this was uh, Fred Burke. He was a, a known hitman, uh, had worked at a number of different organizations, the Egan's Rats Gang in St. Louis, uh, the Purple Gang in Detroit, and eventually with Al Capone's organization in Chicago. Wow. And he was here on December 14, 1929. This is 10 months after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He had a minor traffic accident with a local resident, which led to a, a confrontation with a local police officer from St. Joseph PD. Here is Charles Skelly. And uh, basically what that resulted in is, is Fred Burke uh, shooting uh, Officer Skelly three times in the, right in the main intersection of downtown St. Oh, Joe. Oh, wow. Uh, fleeing the scene, uh, 
uh, in the process, he wrecked his car. He carjacked another one. Um, to make a long story short, we 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 lost track of him. But uh, our investigation from the Berrien County Sheriff's Department led us to his wrecked vehicle, and led us to a residence south of town here, about five miles, where Fred had a, a home that he had purchased. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the process of going through the home and looking for him, we found a huge arsenal of weaponry, which included wow. uh, these two Thompson machine guns, uh, bulletproof vest, uh, tear gas grenades, hand grenades, Whoa. Uh, rifles, shotguns, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and uh, $324,000 in banknotes from a bank in Wisconsin. That had... At this point in time, we were probably calling Homeland Security nowadays. <laughs> well, yeah. We had a local it... terrorist. I hope you enjoyed this American Road Trip Talk. Don't forget to listen to part two of this story, entitled The Birth of CSI and a Good-Hearted Assassin. You'll find it on our American Road blog website. By the way, if you like these podcasts, then you're just the person who should subscribe to the digital edition of the magazine. Go to AmericanRoadMagazine.com and click on the Preview Our Magazine tag. You'll get a nice sample of the digital layout and the opportunity to sign up for electronic delivery of our next issues. While you're on our homepage, check out our blogs, trip suggestions, special deals, sweepstakes, and so much more. You can even friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Till we meet again on the American Road for another trip talk, this is your host, Foster Brown, reminding you that the joy is in the journey.